you. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Down East Acadia Regional Tourism, a collaboration of organizations and businesses who support and promote the tourism economy of Washington and Hancock counties. Down East Acadia is a partner of the main office of tourism. More at downeastacadiatourism.org. When are we going to talk about Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. Those three weeks where I had no contact with him, I felt so free. I slept so good. And I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells in my own house anymore. Even if there's not a toxic, abusive, violent action going on that moment, the expectation that it might is always there. Today is a two-parter about domestic abuse and religion. My best friend from high school is Faye, or Feggy. I remember her telling me a long, long time ago about nightmare marriage to a canter. It was hard to connect this with sunny personality. I didn't have the language at the time to consider it domestic abuse, but I sure do now. It was really nice to reconnect with and I am grateful to her for talking with me about this experience of about 40 years ago. Welcome. How are you doing, Pat? I'm nice good. To- How are you? Good. Thank God. Thank God. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference when you're married to, a, you know, the nicest guy in the world. It certainly does. Or by yourself. One of the two. Right. Anyway, so uh, I'm just so happy that uh, I met Laser. Thank God. And... Um, you know, we're in love and we're on a honeymoon for 36 years. We're married. Thank God. So let's go back to where you were in your life when you met this other person. Well, we met at a singles event in the Catskills and um, I love to sing and he loves to sing. I was 20 or 22. I'm not sure. He was like um, eight or 10 years older than me. You know, he was like, uh, like a teddy bear. And he was always smiling, and he wined and dined me for three months. And were you looking for someone at that time? Did you want to find a partner? Yes, I did. He had to be religious, and also we had to have a lot in common. And it had to click. Everything had to click. How would you describe yourself as far as religion back then? Basically, just modern Orthodox. Of course, we don't travel on Saturday, or we don't... uh, we don't shop on Saturday, you know, and everything is kosher. And how about him? What was he? How would you describe him? The same thing. He was of the same kosher and religious, the same way as I was. He was a cantor, right? Yeah, he was a cantor. He had a beautiful voice. We sang, we sang together. We sang, we would do duets together. So that even made me even more interested in him. Tell me about how long you were going out before you started talking about getting married. He wanted to join me for three months. Don't forget, it was a long-distance relationship. He was from New York. I was from Montreal. After three months, I got married. Did anybody say, hey, this is moving too fast? Or did you think it was moving too fast? He came from a good family. Now, what can go wrong? What can go wrong? We had, like, uh, about 300 people at the wedding. It was a, a big lot. wedding. Yeah, it was a big wedding. Well, usually, usually these weddings are, are large. And so when, tell me when the first signs of trouble came. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. After we got married, we had a little, we had a, a like a disagreement about something. I don't remember what it was. It was a little disagreement. And um, we spent the first evening, the first night at, in my room, in my bedroom, in my house. He took his fist and he put a big hole into my bedroom door. That was the first, that was my first, you know, welcome home. How long after you'd been married did that happen? The same day. He put a big, big, 
fist into into our bedroom, into our uh, my bedroom door, and that was the beginning of that was the beginning of a horror story. He used to get upset over any little thing. I hid it from my parents. I didn't tell them anything. The only thing is they 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 realized that the, the, there was a hole in my in my bedroom door. You know that was not too. Uh, that was that was a horrible thing for them to see. You know. What did they? What, did they ask you about it? And what did you say? I just well, I told them the truth. I told them that he got upset. They thought it was very very awkward for him to do it, but it didn't say anything because what are they going to say? Like we just got married, you know. Give it a chance. And my mother always told me, you have to work at a marriage. It's a give and take, and you know. You just have to grin and bear it and um, work it out and work it out. I didn't say anything else because I didn't want her to get, I didn't want my parents to get worried. We moved to New York. We moved to, to Utica, New York for a year. And during that time, um, the people that he worked for, um, you know, they, they were very upset because he would get upset at, at his uh, people that you know that hired him, he would get upset at them all the time, and um, for no reason. So he was losing his temper around everybody, not just you. Around everybody, around everybody. Yeah, it was really, really, and and uh, and they they were happy with me, but they weren't happy with him. Was he working for synagogues? He was working for synagogues. Yes. When they saw his temper, did they ever ask you if you were okay? No, they never asked me if I was okay. You know, when you're talking about, you know, the the head of of the synagogues, you don't want, you know, they don't want to get involved because it's, you know, none of their business. But um, but my parents, my mother, my once when we went to visit them, my mother did see I was black and blue on my arm, and they were very upset about that. But uh, the, the synagogue, no, the synagogues never said anything. So he, he was terminated, you know, uh, after the first year. And then, then we we moved to Texas. Wow, the same thing happened. But we, also, living in Texas without knowing anybody there, that it seems to me that it could have been getting worse. You, was, you were isolated now. From I was isolated. I was isolated. I had nobody, you know, I couldn't talk to anybody because, you know, I, I couldn't confide in anybody because of his position. If I put mushrooms in a tomato sauce, he would take the whole, the whole big pot of spaghetti sauce and he would dump it on our off-white carpet in our apartment because I put mushrooms in there. And, and then he would get hysterical he would barricade the doors. He would barricade the doors that I couldn't get out. He would close all the windows, take the phone off the hook so I couldn't call my parents. I was in a prison. I was I was locked up in a prison. And then he would start to take. We had a freezer because we uh, because we had kosher meat and it was very hard to get where we were. So we we had a lot of frozen meat in a freezer that we got from Montreal and from the States. He would take the fr frozen meat and he would throw it at me. For any little thing it was it, that triggered him off. He was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I was living in fear. I was living, it was horrible. I was always petrified. I was nervous. I was in a very bad state. How about your sisters? Did you ever tell your sisters about what was going on? No. I never told anybody because I didn't want them to get worried. I, I, I was the one that decided to marry him. So it was my responsibility to try to either make it work or it couldn't work. But I felt like I was in prison and I was like in a, in a, in a what do you call it, solitary confinement. And, uh, you know, without even, and I didn't even see a light because I don't know how am I going to ever get out of this. The only time that I thought I had I had some hope was that my sister had to get married. She had to go get married in Israel. I told him, I said, "Look, I have to leave. I have to go to this. I have to go to the wedding." 
So he said, he threatened me. He says, if I don't want you to go to the wedding, he says, I'm going to throw you down the stairs, break your bones, and you won't go to the wedding. And I said, well, listen, it's my sister. I really want to be there. So then I called his father. I said, please, you have to help me. You have to take care of him because he's not going to let me go to the wedding. And I'm afraid he's going to break my bones and he's going to kill me. And I don't know what he's going to do, but I was very, I was petrified. I, I didn't know what he was going to do. So thank God his father came to save me and he came and he took care of him. He says, look, I'm coming to take care of him. Because they knew, his parents knew that he was sick. They did? They knew that he was sick. Of course, they knew that he was, that he had, he had a low blood sugar and he, that he had a manic, he was manic depressive. But they thought that after he got married, it would go away. That's what um, his uncle told me. They were very well known in the States. Very well, very, very well known. In what way were they well known? Uh, like in the religious community, they everybody knew who they were. That's when I had a chance to to escape. I took whatever I could in a suitcase I, to Israel. I was married to him for four years, but I escaped twice during that time. When you escaped the other two times, what happened each time when you tried to leave before? So, okay, so the first time when I escaped, that's what that was when my sister went to you know got married. I went back with my family when they when they left. Israel, I went yeah. back with them, and yeah. I, was safe. I, was, I felt safe. I wasn't going to go back to that, that horrible life. I was afraid that he would kill me after a few months. He said, look, come back. He says, I went for help. I got help. I'm a different person now. I said, look, I'm going to give you a second chance, but that's it. He picked me up at the airport. He was drugged up. He took me to his apartment in Brooklyn, and then, you know, and he seemed to be, he seemed to be okay, but then after the next day, he started again with his craziness. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it came back. Right away? Yeah, the next day. So, um, so I got the chance to escape again. He had to leave. He had to get something at the store. He had to leave. It gave me a chance to say, this is it. I called up the airlines. I got another. I got a plane ticket, and uh, I, I I left for good. You can't change a person. You can't you can't get better? You know, a person like that can't get better. He has serious serious illnesses, serious serious problems. And did you did you did he let you go? Did you get a divorce? He didn't he didn't try to prevent you from getting a divorce. He didn't let me go so fast. Are you kidding? He wanted money. He he wanted to you know he didn't want to, he didn't want to give me up because he he still he says I love you. I don't want to give you up. I said there's no way I'm coming back to you because I said I'm going to die if I go back to you. I'm going to die, and I I will have a nervous breakdown. I will have a nervous breakdown. So. I didn't know what to do because, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do because he wasn't budging. He wasn't budging. He wouldn't give me, he wouldn't give me the divorce. And but, 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 but how come, why did he need to agree to that though? Couldn't you just, did he, did he need to agree to it? Yes, because in the Jewish religion, you have to get a get. Oh. You get a, Jewish, a Jewish divorce. Got it. Otherwise, otherwise you can't get remarried. So he had to agree to the get. That's right. How did you get him to agree to that? So this, uh, this was a, it was a miracle from God. I became very good friends with another uh, cantor. He said, look, he says, well, there's a big convention at, at this hotel. And he says, I'm going to bring the get to this convention. And I'm going to make him sign it in front of everybody. And if he doesn't, he will be ostracized. And he will never get another job in New York. So he we went he went to the convention, and he told them point blank. He said, "You have to sign this, and you have to let free. The, it's enough." He says, "Let her go. Let her be free. Sign this. Get sign this. Get right here in front of all the other cantors. All the cantors were just watching him, and he had no choice in the matter. But he had to sign, and so he signed the get, and and." And so um, I was free. I had, to, I still had to get the get in Montreal in front of a tribunal. That didn't make any sense because 
I was the one that was persecuted. I was the one that was, that was um, you know, beaten up. And I was the one that was terrorized for four years, you know. So why are they, give, you know, putting me to, what are, why are they giving, you know, asking me these crazy questions? And then they, I finally got my get after four years. Well, what happened to him after the divorce? Did you hear? Did he remarry? Or what I happened? did hear. I did hear. We were at a, we went with a family, with my new family, when, you know, with my kids. Later on, many years after, many years after, when we were sitting and the kids were in camp in this vacation, and we were sitting at the pool, and I was just speaking to somebody next to me, and it was a it was a woman, and she and I told her about my life, I told her what I had, and I, that I was you know I was married to a cantor, and she says, oh, she says, you know, in my building, in my building in New York. There was a cantor, and he. She told me about the same, the same person that I was married to. He got remarried. He beat up his wife, but they had two children. Unfortunately, they had two children, and they had to take the children away from him. The social services took the children away. the The wife was beaten up. She was in a mental institution. Do you want to talk about your mother at all? Because I know Faggy tells me a lot about her marriage, you know, how bad it was. Or do you want to leave that out of this story? No, we can. St- I can talk about my mother. My, my, I told my mother many, many times to divorce my father. She, she didn't listen. She never listened because they're from, from Europe. And they, uh, they, you know, in those days, getting divorced was, was, was no-no. My mother was married close to 60 years. He usually mentally abused her. The only one time, one time, uh, he, I did see he pinched my mother and she was black and blue. Many, many times I would tell her to leave my father. A lot of times she wouldn't listen. She was too afraid. What am I going to do with, with five kids alone? She said, who's going to take me? What's going to happen to me? She was always afraid. She would buy us shoes. And she would tear up the bills and she would throw it down the toilet. She was afraid my father would see and would get angry at her. She went through hell and high water. And, and you know, I remember that she would make food for us and she, and she would eat the bones, you know, because she was, you know, it was, she had a very, very hard life. It's not only the, the the physical, but it's the mental abuse. Because if you get that mental abuse all the time, you're finished. You are finished. You're finished. You you know you. There's no like you feel that you're in prison and that there's no there's no light out there and that you're gonna you know that you'll never get out of it. So you have to say to yourself that you deserve a better life than this. You have to pick yourself up and you have to leave. Because there's there is a better life, and even if you're by yourself, it's better than being with with a crazy a crazy man that makes your life a living hell. Freedom, freedom is a, is a wonderful thing. Yes, you could do whatever you want, whenever you want. Exactly. And you don't have anybody putting you down and and terrorizing you. So I'm talking because I want everybody in this whole world to realize that they're not alone. That there's others. Like I went through, like my friend with the 12 kids went through. So I'm so happy now with my new, with my husband. And I have eight grandchildren now. I started my life again. You do what you want. You go where you want. And you don't have to watch what you say or watch what you do. And nobody stands over you with a whip. Well, let's toast to freedom. Yeah, let's toast to freedom. Thank you. And now we are going to turn to Jennifer. Welcome, Jennifer. My name is Jennifer, and I live in South Portland currently. I am 42. A very quick backstory of, I guess, how I met this person, because I think it kind of set me up. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, and I got married very, very young, basically right out of high school. Like I hadn't even finished my senior year and I was married. And was he a good, a good person? Was it a healthy relationship? No, not at all. I was with him for four years. I was the only one that worked, um, that provided for any of the, the housing we had, the cars, anything. 
So I would work two or three different jobs. Um, I would nanny. Um, I worked for a couple different families. Nobody had any idea. Everybody just thought he was this very nice, kind of quiet Christian guy, but very disturbed, very just awful to deal with. I cried every day, I think. I never had access to my own money. Tell me about that. That was a kind of a gradual thing, I think, as he stopped working and just kind of refused to get another job because he just would say that he couldn't handle people or couldn't handle a basic, you know, working at a grocery store job type thing. Was it like one of those things where like, he's a genius, so you you just got to provide the yeah. environment for him to be able to create? Yeah. Yep. Oh, it absolutely was because he was incredibly talented in painting and photography and his music. And he was just this kind of like, yeah, it very much felt like I was supporting this brilliant person who maybe someday would make some money out of this art. I don't know. And also, was that an excuse for his behavior to some degree? Mm-hmm. Yep. It turned into it for sure because it, uh, you know, I, I, I never knew what would upset him. And then he would do these things where he would just close himself in either the whatever room he was in or, you know, kick me out of the car or all these very dramatic. And it was never anything physical up until right up until the very end. He was very weird with his sleeping habits and, you know, he would put music on in his headphones and it would be like, I could hear it. It was very loud. Um, but I couldn't disturb him. I couldn't even barely move if he was trying to go to bed. He's got headphones on that are, you can hear while you're trying to go to sleep and and you have to watch, you have to be careful about even moving because to disturb him. Oh yeah. Or he would literally without even warning. Um, well, I guess that was a physical right there. Um, he would just push me out of the bed onto the ground and I was expected to just stay just stay there. So one night he grabbed the back of my head, my hair, and cranked my neck around and told me not to F with him. And I didn't even know where I had come from. I hadn't, I was just trying to be quiet so we could go to bed. And then he stormed out of the house and I went, he's going to kill me. I don't know why that was my immediate, I was like, out of nowhere, I need to get out of this house now. So I grabbed a bag of my stuff. Was he he drunk? No. No. Drinking drinking wasn't a problem in this relationship? Thing because, um, you know, back to the church going, he didn't like my church because it wasn't conservative enough. So I went to his church, which they don't drink. And it was all very strict. You didn't even drink coffee. So I was very controlled in what I ate. Um, I was expected to be vegan. I was expected to, you know, not, I don't, I would abstain from alcohol. I didn't even drink coffee. Um, I couldn't bring things home. The only thing people saw of us as a couple were, oh, you know, she's with this very nice, quiet, talented guy. They just thought he was this lovely, nice guy. They had no idea. Nobody had any idea. The first year or so, you know, my parents could come over and, um, you know, we went over there and it just, he would, with many things, with where we lived, with what car he had, with who I interacted with, he would slowly start having that thing be the thing that would put him into a rage. And whether it was because, you know, he could hear people in the other apartment now we have to move because I can hear existing people somewhere else um or if he thought the neighbor's kids were getting too close to his precious car that I paid for that he never you know or because my mother might have put butter in the squash during Thanksgiving you know that's it we're done we're not going over there and I was very close to my mom so but I would never tell her any of this stuff because it just was this slow kind of seeping of just, he just got crazier and crazier. It was a nightmare. It was just, I mean, he would just do the craziest things. And I was just constantly making excuses for him. You know, it slowly was that he, you know, he stopped going to family things with me. And then it was, we don't ever go to my parents anymore. And then it was, you know, they can't come over here anymore. And they better not even drive by or I saw them drive by and now I'm in trouble. Um, yeah, it was, 
it was so, it was such a nightmare. It's funny because I have not thought back to the first experience for a while. I thought after getting out of this one, I'm not ever going to be in a relationship like that again. I met another guy in college and I got, we got married two years later. Um, I was still very active in the church. At that point I had a, you know, a a one-year-old. So you ended up getting divorced from this guy? Yep. All of the advice I kept getting from the church was, oh, find a nice church guy. That's, that's where I went wrong. But I thought the first guy was a guy from church. A very quick fast forward, I met a, a gentleman that was all the way in Canada, very, very 3,000 miles away online. But he was the same religion and he was this, what I thought, lovely guy. And it, Met him many times. Um, he would fly us out there for a month at a time. All in my mind and what I was getting fed from the church and from people around me were, you know, I'm not going to be able to raise my son correctly if I don't have a, a father figure. Initially, it was good. And then he kind of pulled the mask off very quickly on the vacation to Mexico. And I, at that point, we had, it was a year and a half later, and we had already gotten married. So super fast, fast forward, I eventually got an apartment and um, had my daughter all on my own. (laughs) Now I'm parenting two small children in an efficiency apartment on nothing. I had to walk to DHS because they were going to shut off my electricity. So I've got the kids and I'm at DHS and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so humiliating. And then there's this very handsome guy from the gym next door with a mason jar with his like protein shake. We started chatting because, you know, my daughter kind of scooted over to him and I find out, you know, he has two children that are the same age. He got called out to, to, to go into his meeting with them. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And I went to go to the room that I was going to get called into to go chat with them. And I, he comes out with a piece of paper real quick and hands me his number. Our first date was at a playground with all of the kids. Right out the gate, very, very complimentary of anything that, you know, you know, oh, you obviously take care of your kids really well and, you know, you feed them only organic things. He's, you know, trying to co-parent with this cra- crazy person, crazy person, you know, constantly telling me how crazy. Anytime... We would get together. It was when he would have his kids. And it it very quickly felt like I was just supposed to be the mom of all of these kids. This isn't even two months in. And I have a pregnancy scare. My daughter is only a year old. And I'm like, oh, my God, you need to be more careful. He read that as hurry up and get her pregnant. So... Sure enough, another month later, and I am for real pregnant this time. This is my third child. And oh my God, I can't mess this up again. You are listening to Let's Talk About It. Conversations with survivors of domestic abuse. Second Friday every month on WERU-FM. And I am Patricia McLean, the host of this radio show, and the founder director of the grassroots main-based and survivor-powered group that's breaking the silence of domestic abuse all across Maine. Now back to my conversation with Jennifer from South Portland. What does this guy do for a living? Oh, it's funny because I didn't really know. Did he appear to have any money? No. Yes and no. Compared to me, but I was so destitute at that point. I mean, I I had scaled myself back to just like the bare minimum. I mean, I was barely scraping by just trying to raise my kids with no childcare. And, you know, he had a car and I didn't at the time. And, you know, he had this big house that he would take me to. Um, he had this apartment building. She lived downstairs. And he would take the kids upstairs to his half of the, the building when it was his turn, whatever. And so I would go over there and then, and it was huge and lovely and compared to my one room space, I can't stay at this tiny apartment that I'm in. I'm now pregnant and I don't, I can't do this on my own. So then I had to move in with him. And here I am stuck <laughs> again, <laughs> or felt like I was stuck, you know. Um, 
And all the while, you know, we were getting the kids, his kids, halftime. And I'm dealing with the, the crazy ex who had the same name as me. Wow. Um, which was weird in itself. Um, but I was like this. He, he would literally describe me as being the, the new gen, the upgraded. But he didn't, you never talked to her. I did initially. Um, I talked to her, tried to be as cordial as possible when grabbing the kids. Um, you know, we would have them half time. So were you ever, were you ever curious about having a conversation with her and saying, Hey, what, what kind of guy is this? Did you ever think about doing that? I did, but she ended up kind of fitting the bill of what he was describing her as. She seemed crazy to you. She did. I understand it now, but. He was making her crazy, but you didn't see that at the time. Right, exactly. So I just thought, oh my gosh, this woman is insane. Okay, um, we're just going to be the best for these kids as we can be on this end. And so it was, it was in and out of court and it was having guardian ad litems come to the house because she was fighting to get her kids away from him. And I was the making the household look perfect. I was no look at this, this beautiful partner I have that I'm about to have a baby with. Um, we're a very, you know, family centered child centered home, you know, I tend to be a little bit of an OCD type. So her house would be a mess and chaos versus, you know, when there would be surprise visits because there was, you know, all of this stuff happening on that end, our house would look perfect. So I made him look, look good. I even had to like testify in court at one point at one of their hearings in this child custody thing back and forth. But up until this point, he seemed like this really good dad. You know, he was working it out. He was trying to do with the crazy of the mom and, you know, our house seemed to be this, you know, loving child centered home. Of course I was home with all of these children. Wow. Now five of them, because once my daughter, my second daughter was born, now there are five children under the age of five. Did he bring in money though to your relationship? He did. Um, but I realized also, I mean, what he got because we weren't married, um, was that, you know, because I now had three children, I could basically cover the food for the whole house because I was, I still qualified for, you know, food stamps. Right. And, you know, if anything, I was feeding him. Um, you know, and myself and my three children all had main care. His son was very, very high needs because he had um, a medical condition oh, no. um, with seizures. Um, and because I had a nursing school background, um, I ended up having to take on the responsibility of his medication and special oh, diet. Um, it was just crazy. It, it was, it was crazy. Um, and you know, that fight went on for a while until she eventually just stopped complying with the court's decisions. She just stopped allowing the kids to come over. On what basis? And, and On what basis? She kept saying that he was abusive and I kept defending him because what I saw at home didn't seem abusive. Right. Was he, was he, you didn't see any abuse from him to the kids? There was one incident that happened when the two older ones, my son and his daughter at three, four ish, he had told them to go run around the house, do some laps around the house. And as children, they took him literally and they ran fully around the house while the front of the house was a very busy road. They didn't stay in the backyard where they normally would have stayed. So out of nowhere, he busts out of the front door. And he catches them on their way by, by the scruff of their necks and just slams them both to the ground. And I thought, oh my gosh. And then there was start to be more things where he would be abusive to my dog. He would start pinning my dog down. Really? Um, he, I came home one day and I very rarely even left the house. Um, I went to go do an errand or something and my dog had a big knot on its head and he admitted that he had punched him in the head. And it was all always just 
passed off as, oh, I'm just, it's just so much stress from dealing with, you know, it was always, it's her fault. We're, you know, we're, once we get away from this fight with my crazy ex, you know, it's going to be so much better. We're in counseling now. You know, I'm in my personal counseling and he's, and we're in couples counseling and we go twice a week. I had been in counseling for a while, but I never disclosed to my personal counselor because in my mind, I was still supposed to look good for his court case. His behavior became more and more erratic and he started getting physical with me. He had told me, you know, if I get violent like that, I want you to do like in a movie. I want you to just slap me across the face. That's going to snap me out of it. So sure enough, not even a week later, you know, he gets up in my face and he's grabbing my, you know, my wrists. And I don't even know why. I don't even know what started this thing. And I, so I tried to do the thing that he said to do. So I go to hit him with one hand and he grabs that wrist. And then I try to do it the other hand and he ends up pinning me down and popping one of my ribs up. Oh my God. And so then I had to go to the doctors and had them a guy that I had gone to see an osteopath that I had gone to see during my pregnancy. And I just told him like, Oh, he just gave me a bear hug too hard. You know, I didn't say anything, of course. Um, but we disclosed it in couples counseling. So she basically was like, okay, so what you're disclosing to me right now means that I need to either report this or I need to terminate our relationship and you can't come see me anymore. And so he was like, great, we're done. And just leaves. And then she goes, this is the first time I've been in the room with her by myself ever. And she said, he's gaslighting you. I have not believed a word he has said for this entire year. If you need help getting out, you just contact me. She said, I will testify in court. I didn't know what gaslighting meant. I was like, wait, you think I'm in an abusive situation? Like I did at this point, it was such a, I didn't think I was in an abusive situation at all. I'm supposed to support my husband and, you know, get him the help that he needs. And then things very, very quickly. I mean, that was September by October. I mean, it was like every physical thing that he did then was, you know, here's the line. The the line is now moved here. So tomorrow, instead of this being the end of the line, you know, this is now the beginning. We're going to find out how much farther we can go. So, you know, I was getting put in headlocks and bashed into things. And I had bruises on my head all the time and around my wrists. And, you know, he would storm into the bathroom and grab me and just headbutt me. Oh, my God. Not unprovoked, you know, no idea. To the point where I had to wear, like, and it's not a good style for the type of hair. You can see that I have very curly hair. I had to cut bangs so they would cover my forehead because I constantly had knots in my head. By October, you know, he had done this surprise birthday with friends of ours, um, surprised me at this costume party. And it was also, you know, for my birthday and I didn't know. And it was lovely, except that, you know, in the car, he was threatening me because I, I didn't open the present the way he wanted me to. Or, and then by the time we got home, it was, you know, he just started slapping me across the face and it was this is your life now. This is actual words coming out of his mouth. This is your life now. This is your life. It's going to be this every day. And at this point, you know, he had slapped me dozens of times and I was just trying to stay out of the way. Um, I didn't know what to do. It was, it was very quick. Um, he started excessively drinking out of nowhere, like bottles of tequila a day. Do you think that he'd been hiding it before? You would have smelt it on his breath, right? Didn't before. Um, He didn't before. It was known that he stayed away from alcohol. Wow. Um, And it got to the point where he started strangling me. Oh, my God. Um, he He would have me go out to this outbuilding that was on our property so that the kids couldn't hear any of it. And, uh, we had a nanny helping at the time. Um, so it was at this point, it's close to Christmas and 
No, I had started over the six month period ever since the counselor had used the term gaslighting. I had started looking up everything I could look up about narcissists and gaslighting. And I was like, Oh my word. I'm married to a narcissist. I looked at the, you know, he had had psyche valves from the fight with his ex because it, she was trying to prove that he was abusive, but was having a very hard time because stuff hadn't actually gotten physical in their eight-year relationship. She just knew what he was. And sure enough, the psyche valves would come back that he had borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, my God. And so I'm looking at this information and then finding out what that means. And then I started, you know, recording anytime his voice would change or I would know that he was going to start being physical. I would put record on my phone and I would stick it in my pocket. He would lecture and lecture and it would, you know, every day was a reason for him to start a fight with me so that he could throw me around. And, you know, it would go hours sometimes because I got very good at just not reacting. Very short answers, not giving details, not, you know, yes, no, not having any reaction. Um, you know, but it would still go on for hours because he was trying to find a reason to start a fight. The worst one happened, you know, right before Christmas where he had brought me out to the shed. He was completely drunk. And in my mind, I just was glad that the kids couldn't hear what was going on because I was out in an outbuilding. And, you know, he'd thrown me into a shelf or something. And very quickly I was on the ground being strangled with him over me. And I thought, I'm, this is it. This is the, I'm going to die right here. And I got to the point where I couldn't feel any of my body and I was starting to black out and he stopped. I don't know why he stopped. I have no idea. Um, I ended up urinating all over myself. Um, I was told later that that's because I was like seconds away from dying. Um, so I got up, stumbled into the house where the nanny was. And she was like, oh my God, we need to call the police right now. And I was like, we can't. Good for her. Do you remember when you, when you said we can't, do you remember what was going on your mind when you said, when you said we can't, what you were thinking about? Because he had constantly said, if the police come, if you're too loud and you scream, if the police come, you're going to have to explain this and they're going to believe me. I mean, there was times where, you know, I'd be outside and he would drag me by my hair into the shed. And one time I did scream, hoping that a neighbor would hear or they would come help or something. It just meant that I got punished worse, you know, because I yelled out. I started telling the folks around us, I told them. At this point, I didn't think he was being abusive to the kids. I thought it was all just me. He was going to be able to come to the house and see the kids without me. And uh, he abducted them instead. And so I got to the hotel room and uh, all of these alarms kept going off on my phone because the security system could see him outside, you know, loading the, the girls up. Mind you, one of them is his biological daughter, but the other one is my daughter not his at all. And I was like, where are you taking our children? And he wouldn't tell me. And I, I can see you. I don't, I don't know if he just thought I couldn't see him. And I was like, I'm looking on the security camera right now. I can, I can see you loading them up. Don't tell me they're in bed. And so he ended up calling my sister which, you know, at this point, we're not close to any family at all, trying to claim that, you know, I'm crazy and I'm, I'm doing drugs and I'm doing cocaine and that I need help. And we've got to help your sister. And my sister knew, knew immediately that he was lying and just played along and said, okay, you know, let me come get the kids. So she was able to talk him into giving the kids back the next morning. I went to go file a, a protection order and they're like, no, he already filed one against you. He went to the courthouse first. Yeah. Well, he threatened, he threatened to do that. Remember he said, he said that if you call the police, I'll say that you did it to me. Yeah. So I get there and the judge, he comes out to the front desk and he's like, well, he's already done that. I can't reverse his. And I said, no, no. I mean, he's looking at me. I'm not, I'm not even five feet tall. 
with all that was going on, I was also very, very frail at this point. I was shaking like a leaf and I'm like, sir, I'm telling you right now, we've been building a, like a safety plan and trying to get him help. You know, he's beating me at this point. Like he's the one that I, like I need protection from him. What did the judge say? It's basically, as soon as he saw me, you could tell he was like, oh, okay. So he just le- he's like, okay, I'll be right back. He leaves for a half an hour. I mean, this is just like at the front desk where you file it. It's not like I was in a courtroom. Right. He goes, okay. I dismissed his. I'm giving you a protection order. He has to stay away from the house. Thank you know, God. He reversed it. Thank and God. After he left, she goes, oh my gosh, that never happens. I had a court date. I had to go in and I had... Every crazy text he had ever sent me, just all of the printed out. I had a stack just of crazy. And I had a timeline of just the progression of how he continued to just get crazier and crazier and how it expanded. And then I had a recording. Excellent. And literally strangling me. (gasps) You mean you pressed the phone just when he was doing it? No, it wasn't on the worst one. It wasn't on... The December one, we had gotten back from that trip and it was, it was Valentine's day. Um, he had given us presents that morning and then immediately went crazy and started strangling me with my bathrobe. In front of the children? They were in the other room. So you could hear him yell at them to be quiet. And then he gets a phone call from a nurse that deals with his other son. And he immediately switches in the recording from threatening me while strangling me to this sweet talking to this nurse. And then you can hear him whisper to me, like, as soon as I'm off this phone call, you're going to get it. So you got your protection from abuse order. She was amazing. She looked like Wonder Woman. She was gorgeous for one and just badass. And she stopped him at one point because he kept trying to interject and ask me questions directly when she told him to ask her questions that, you know, she could question, he could question her. And at one point she just goes, it is very clear who is the abuser in this situation. She said, I consider her to be a credible witness. I don't consider you to be. I got set up with Pine Tree Legal. You know, it was a good year and a half in family court just to get divorced from him. Did the restraining order to help your case at all in family court? What's weird about it is it's it's like they didn't talk at all. So on one end, I had someone going, he can't go anywhere near you. He was then ankle monitored for an entire year. It would go off at midnight. Many times during the day, I would have police show up at my house to make sure I was okay. Family court just went on like it was a normal divorce. They'd be like, okay, so let's talk about visitation. And I would... I'm sorry, we're not talking about any, they're not going anywhere near him. He abducted them. They're still traumatized from the abduction. Did they listen to that? Initially, no. And so I would tell Pine Tree, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. But like, it was just going on like it was a normal divorce. So then between Pine Tree and through these doors and the fact that I had to submit evidence to... I guess the, the police department, the DA contacted me. You have so much evidence, you need to press criminal charges. Wait, wait, wait. You don't press criminal charges. They press criminal charges. Right, right. They're the ones that do it. So they wanted me to submit everything that I had so that they could charge him with all the things. Yeah. So I had to go into the police department and through these doors were there um, and submit everything on my phone. I mean, it was hours of videos. Um, And then the DA started a a case against him. Did that affect the family court? No. (laughs) Like I said, it was like they didn't even communicate. What did you think about the fact that they weren't communicating? Didn't you find that odd? It was so insane to me. It's like, were you, it's like, just go look on that piece of paper right there where they have all of where they're literally charging him with a felony for attempting to kill me via strangulation, domestic threatening, domestic violence. Um, 
he, and they weren't, and I just kept standing my ground and saying, no, I'm not giving, you know, he would ask for, he asked for my dog. He asked for my car. And I was like, no, it's in my name. And no, you can't have my dog. Uh, you know, stupid stuff that it was my dog that you, had, that you had abused, by the way. Yep. Correct. So, and no, and I had gotten a new dog also because that one had eventually passed away. Were you worried that they were going to order visitation by him? Oh, yeah. I was the whole time. It was terrifying. I thought for sure I was going to have to subject my children or at least my daughter with him to, to him again. And she was so little, she was two. Um, but they were terrified, you know, they, they had heard enough in the, the couple of months where he was much more open about abusing me in front of them to the point where my youngest daughter, his daughter as well, would say, I'm scared of you yelling at mommy. Why are you yelling at mommy? You know, and he would give some explanation of, oh, she needs to learn this or that. You know, he's talking to a two-year-old. Simultaneously, family court and divorce and criminal court happened kind of at the same time. So, you know, once a month or more, I was in court. He took a plea, a plea bargain um, to get out of the felony charge. And he was sentenced to nine months in jail. Don't tell me they suspended it. He only had to serve five. They had the whole Portland Police Department. My house was on high alert for an entire year. You know, he was ankle monitored. They were told in briefings in the morning that they had to do patrols around my house because almost every day he would come too close. So they, there was a big triumph, in, you know, in the courts because they finally, you know, a strangulation became a felony. But they play it down all the time. And that's what they did with you. They friggin' put it down. So this guy yeah. gets five months for that. Why? Why'd they play it down? Were you, were you, were you willing to testify? Oh, yeah. I testified. So why? Did they, did they give any indication to you why they were giving this plea deal to them? I don't know. I, it, it all was such a blur. I, I understand that it was a blur because for me, too, it was a complete blur. And it was very traumatic. Yeah. The DA said that this is about what I'm going to be able to get anyway. Why? Because of one case that she had just had recently, also a strangulation case, and they also only got nine months. And I thought, well, why are we taking this more seriously? So, you know, it wrapped that up. And then I still had to continue with family court. There were times that he had to literally come in chains to hit family court. The whole thing just felt so surreal. I mean, I was eventually able to, I got full, full custody of my children. Where are things now? Are you still, are you afraid of him? Do you ever see him? What's going on there? They called me at midnight on Halloween. Literally call me at midnight. Oh, we let him out. What? And oh, he's not ankle monitored this time because we don't have enough funding to have him ankle monitored. You no, know if he has another girlfriend? when I was continuing through um, the divorce side of things and he was coming to the court in chains and, you know, his uniform from the jail or whatever, there was a girl that would come and wait all dressed up. Like she was, I don't know, going to take notes that I, it was very weird. And I, at one point was like, I went over to her in the hallway and I said, why are you here? I said, don't you know that you're in, you're going to be in incredible danger. He is not worth waiting for. You need to take everything you can, any money, any possessions, anything you can and get out now. Thank you, Jennifer. And if what and I and Jennifer have been talking about sounds familiar, if someone in your life is making you afraid, Say something. The 24-7 Maine Domestic Abuse Hotline number is 1-800-834-HELP. Connect with our network of survivors at findingourvoices.net. 40 Maine women, and now including Governor Janet T. Mills, standing proud and speaking loud about our experiences to break the silence of domestic abuse. We also offer an array of sister-to-sister -sister support services. 
The music on this show is by Roan Yellowthorne, a.k.a. my daughter, Jackie McLean Strack. And you can learn more about her indie pop duo with Sean Strack at RoanYellowthorne.com. That's R-O-A-N-Y-E-L-L-O-W-T-H-O-R-N.com. If you have comments or questions about this episode or otherwise want to get in touch with me, President Founder of Finding Our Voices, reach out at hello at findingourvoices.net. See you next month on WERU-FM, second Friday at 4 p.m. And until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long, hard road. Finally, I am feeling sure of what I know. I try to speak my mind. Try to take it slow. Try and for WERU comes from our listeners and from Maine Media Workshops and College presenting photographer and artist Delphine Fawundu discussing her works in a talk called Tales and Textiles in the Alumni Lecture Series on Thursday, January 27th at 4.30 p.m. Registration at mainmedia.edu slash lectures. Welcome to 2022 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. We're calling on the Senate to have that debate because we want to pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We want to pass the Freedom to Vote Act. We know how much we have fought for. Chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Joyce Beatty, called on the Senate Wednesday to pass a pair of voting rights bills. President Joe Biden meets with Senate Democrats today as pressure grows to drop the filibuster, requiring 60 votes to advance legislation. The president spoke in Georgia this week in favor of allowing a simple majority vote on the measures. But currently, Democrats Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and all 50 GOP senators oppose changing the rules. Republican South Dakota Senator John Thune. I urge all of my Democrat colleagues to resist this blatant power grab by the Democrat leadership and preserve our long-standing commitment to representation for the minority in the United States Senate. 
Amid growing inflation, Chief White House Economic Advisor Brian Deese said Wednesday the U.S. is well positioned to tackle economic challenges head on and added the president has a plan. His approach to attacking prices and costs are grounded in the, in the, the premise